I thought I would figure this out. I feel like I have to be perfect. Always on. Always moving. Why, Why is, it, is it, it so loud? loud? <sighs> I desperately need a place where I can slow down. A space to call home. A home that allows me time to process. To discover who, who I'm, I'm meant, meant to be. be. We were never meant to do life on our own. So I, I, I will be a part of something greater. It's great to be here with you all. Daylight Savings, uh, Jen and I last night literally just looked at each other and it sounded like we were preparing for a battle in war. We were like, all right, it's coming. All right, tomorrow. Like, how are we going to adjust? How are we going to do this? This isn't going to be good. It's going to hurt, but we're going to make it through. So I'm glad that you are here. Uh, there are Sundays where it is, it's a remnant gathering, and yet it's a good, good place to be in the remnant here together uh, as we take a deep dive into the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And I just want to give you a warning in case you missed it, if you kind of zoned out as the scripture was being read. Jesus doesn't exactly land the plane lightly to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, instead, this morning we are going to be talking about hell. Now, I'm sure this morning you did not wake up an extra hour early and think to yourself, man, I really hope, like, John talks about hell this morning at Community Lincoln Park. I can assure you, I did not wake up an hour early this morning excited and looking forward to talking about hell. But here's the thing. Uh, as we've been moving through the Sermon on the Mount, what I love when we sit through a scripture passage is sometimes we are led to discussions and conversations that we might not otherwise <laughs> have wanted to have, but that Jesus himself finds important to take us to. And so I am excited this morning that we can get a chance to just reflect gently, honestly, on the importance of what Jesus is saying. And as uh, we set up this conversation, I recently heard a pastor in New York City, John Tyson, talk about how important it is to find a good diagnosis if you ever want to receive a cure. If you're going to have a cure, you actually first need to have a proper diagnosis. He shared a story about his own father who'd been living in chronic pain for over 10 years, right? So like chronic pain is happening. His father keeps going to all these different doctors, medical professionals, surgeons, and every one of them is giving him slightly different answers. And yet the problem is none of them are properly identifying where this chronic pain is coming from. And he says, finally, after this 10-year journey, he finds the right doctor who finally gives him the right comprehensive exam and this doctor comes back to him and says, hey, this is very strange, but there's this very small, very rare tumorous cell that seems to be sitting right in your nervous system that's been causing you all this pain. That's the bad news. But the good news is if we operate on this cancerous tumor, there is not only a chance that you will recover, there's actually a strong chance that the pain itself will go away. I wonder this morning, as we enter into what is inevitably a challenging word from Jesus, I wonder for some of us if the honest question to ask is, has life on our own really been going that well? Have we actually found the right diagnosis for the pains that we carry? As we've been walking through this series, the way we've been framing it is that there actually is this invitation from Jesus into what we're calling a you plus 
life. This is a life of flourishing. This is a life of connection. This is a life where you find yourself in relationship with God, the church, and the world. And this life is, if we're being honest, the life we've all been looking for, the life we're longing for, the life we sense deep down inside we were made for. And yet, alternatively to the you plus life, how we've been framing it, is that there is also a you life. There is a life that is lived on your own for yourself. And the challenge is for so many of us, we find ourselves living in this you life and we're not really getting honest, good feedback about what's going wrong within this you life that we have found ourselves within. So in this final passage, Jesus is going to point us towards the destination of where a you life is going and then he's going to correct us by once again inviting us into the you plus life that we were intended for. So if you have your Bible, you can feel free to open with me. We'll have it up on the screen. This is coming from Matthew 7. We're going to begin with Matthew 7, 13 to 14. You've possibly heard this verse before. However, I want to venture to you this morning. This may be the least comfortable verse in the New Testament. That's saying something. There's a lot of uncomfortable verses. This one is pretty uncomfortable. So let me go ahead and read this again to you. This is Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. As you're following Jesus through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to be a master weaver of images into his teaching. This image is, I think, actually important to slow down with. As Jesus is depicting life, the journey that we are each on, Jesus is going to give us two concrete images here. Did you catch them? One is a road or a path, and another is the gate, the gate that is going to allow you to enter in to the city. Now, this whole time Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God, and here it's helpful to picture the kingdom of God as a city of life and purpose and flourishing in relationship with God that all of us are trying to get into. Now, can I get just a brief shout out for a city as the image of what is the life we're meant to get into? That is why I'm here. Uh, I love the city, and if you think I'm making this up, just go to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, and you will discover great news for all of us Chicago city dwellers. Guess where our eternal destination is intended for? God, in bringing heaven and earth together, is going to establish a city. So I'm not making any of this up. Yeah, amen, hallelujah, shout out, this is great. But Jesus has some challenging news here. If the image is out of a city, if the kingdom of God is like a city we're all trying to get into, Jesus essentially says around this city there is a wall and there's only one gate and it's quite small. Now in Jerusalem, there were many gates that surrounded the city and yet uh, in any city, uh, cities would be guarded by walls. Walls would be there for protection. Within the walls would tend to be the hub of commerce, influence, the marketplace. And so every day, people would come and go in and out of the city. And if there's a wide gate, then, I mean, you can imagine, traffic flows quite smoothly. Uh, it's quite nice to find a wide gate. Normally, you wouldn't have to wait at the wide gates. So everybody who knows the city knows, head to the wide gates. Like, the wide gates are where it's at. You walk right in. There's no problems. However, along the city wall of Jerusalem, there were two or three gates that were quite small and essentially only allowed one person at a time 
to enter. So your business might be on that side of Jerusalem. You know you need to get through, and that gate should, in theory, be the fastest way for you to get where you need to go in the city. Yet the struggle is you walk up to these narrow gates, and oftentimes in the ancient world, there'd be a long line of people standing, waiting their turn to enter through the gate. This is, in fact, the hell that is Disney World uh, every time (laughs) you go there in the summer. Uh, But I think the image is is actually intentional to to know what Jesus is trying to say is, hey, nobody, nobody wants to take the time it takes to get through that narrow gate, right? Who wants to spend the time necessary to wait as you move one spot at a time, inching forward? I mean, you know there's wider gates just around the way. Like, maybe if you go to the wide gate, you won't have to wait. It'll be great. You'll get right where you need to go. But Jesus here warns, Listen, enter through the narrow gate because that road, which is often less taken, is the one that leads to this smaller gate that's going to actually get you into the destination you want, which is the kingdom of God. The deception, though, is that the wide gate, the one you'd be drawn to, where your instinct tells you should be faster, easier, better, is actually the one that's going to lead to and this is Jesus' word, destruction, and many enter through it. Okay, so this is the moment where I want to bring up hell again. Uh, None of you have left yet, so that's great. We're off to a a great start so far this morning. Um, As I want to discuss hell with you, I just first want to acknowledge I grew up in the 90s in a very religious family. My parents were in ministry. I was in Christian circles. And it felt like growing up, people talked about hell a lot. Did any of you have that experience? There was like a lot of hell. Like hell was often brought up on Sundays. And hell typically was depicted growing up as a child as this lake of fire. There's like torture and torment. It was all kind of red in my mind. Uh, It was difficult to picture. And yet it was definitely scary. (laughs) That's what I remember as a child thinking, man, I do not want to experience that. And so uh, hell, just to be safe, was something I'd do anything to avoid. So when invitations were made, either to uh, join Bible studies or, you know, get baptized or confirmation classes or even raise my hand, there was a lot of motivation to say, hey, let's just like avoid that destination and let's definitely take the other route. However, if I could, if I could just gently walk into this with you, uh, why I want to pause with you this morning is to ask, with this image, is, is any of that there, that sort of get a free ticket out of hell language? Is, is that what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 7, 13 to 14? Instead of a transaction, like Jesus is something that just gets me out of this bad, fearful punishment. Instead, Jesus talks here about a road, right? Which if you think about a road, a road is, is not actually just a one-time decision thing. A road is a path or a journey that you make many steps upon. In fact, you have to intentionally set yourself towards the destination that that road is leading you. And, and even when Jesus talks about the gate, I can't help but wonder if the reason why this passage is so uncomfortable is because nobody's really let off the hook by Jesus here are they? I mean, I mean, Jesus isn't talking about like, you know, 
enter the religious way, and if you do good church things for the rest of your life, you will find yourself in the paradise I've promised. No, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, the one you wouldn't expect, the one that will be more costly, more challenging, and more difficult than you probably imagine. That's where you're trying to go, and few of us, few of us are probably going to make it because it's going to be so hard to see how important this small, tiny gate is going to be for you. I can't help but wonder, uh, one commentator pointed this out to me, just the pure character required to intentionally go and stand and wait in a line for something that you otherwise could get access to far easier in another destination. I mean, that alone is the kind of challenging, costly character that Jesus has been talking about this whole Sermon on the Mount. And, and yet that seems, that seems to me to be far more focused on who we are becoming now. Are we becoming the kinds of people who would be willing to wait at the narrow gate rather than simply take the easier road? Now, if, if uh, you're worried that I am venturing too far uh, away from what Jesus said, let's, let's take it back to him and see where he takes us next. This is now verse 15 to verse 16. Jesus follows up with a second punch. Uh, there's, no, there's no break. Jesus is going to say this, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? But likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear bad fruit. Um, it's interesting, as I was doing some digging on this, uh, something monumental had happened pretty shortly after Jesus' lifetime. So Jesus is there in Jerusalem, and he's teaching to Jewish people living under Roman rule. And inevitably, in Israel, there was a deep, deep longing to throw off the oppression that was the Roman Empire. Like, the people were hungry for it. They knew God did not intend them to be ruled by a foreign power. And so, uh, inevitably... Even within Jesus' lifetime, there'd be churnings of revolution. Like, how do we get Rome out of here? And interesting enough, 66 AD, just a short 30-some years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, uh, there's going to be a revolt that takes place in Jerusalem. It's known historically as the first Jewish revolt. And uh, interestingly, as this revolt is happening in Jerusalem with the temple, uh, they drive the Roman guards out. So Rome is pushed out of Jerusalem. And as Rome is being pushed out, you can imagine if you were living in Jerusalem at the time, there inevitably would have been this swell of people saying, man, it's happening, right? Like God has come. God is with us. God is helping us get rid of these foreign powers, these oppressors. In fact, maybe the kingdom of God is about to start right now. Like, it's never been this good. We've never had Rome out of here in our lifetimes. How good is this going to be? And by 69 AD, if you know your Roman history, Vespasian would be dispatched from Rome, who was a horrifying general. He would then set up his son Titus, who was equally horrific, to siege the city of Jerusalem for a full year until they would starve the inhabitants out. And by 70 AD, not only would a huge swath of the population of Jerusalem be killed horrifically, not only would homes, livelihoods, businesses, everything that had made Jerusalem what it was be destroyed, but even more tragically, the temple itself would be gone. 
by 70 AD. Rome destroys it. You can almost imagine then, as Jesus is speaking, warning about false prophets, saying, hey, just be careful. Be careful if you start hearing news that you think is good, but that isn't accompanied by true character and goodness. Like if the prophets are telling you everything's going to be okay, that the kingdom of God has finally come, that now is the hour when everything turns better, be careful and take a closer look at their lives. Uh, I do think this is relevant today, continually for us, as we wrestle in Christian circles with how to deal with these challenging passages, how to deal with talks about hell, how to deal with talks about uh, judgment, how to deal with who Jesus is and why we need him and how we talk about how we need him. Uh, I'm going to steer right into this. In 2010, when I was roughly in college, uh, there was a shift in my circles to start reading uh, books. One in particular by Rob Bell was called Love Wins. It got everybody talking about heaven and hell. And there was kind of this general sense as the waters were being churned that like, it would be nice, it would be nice if actually this destruction stuff wasn't something we should take too seriously. Like, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I think it'd be nice. Uh, sounded nice. And a, a, lot of, a, a lot of research went along with this. Um, I've been in all the circles to read. You know, it's pointed out often that the word Jesus uses for hell, Gehenna, only appears 11 times in the Gospels. It's not that many times. Uh, three of them actually appear here in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and when you look into Gehenna, hell, what you discover is that there actually was this valley outside of Jerusalem. In fact, the background to this valley was that during the reigns of Old Testament kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, they start using this valley outside of Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to Molech, which was one of the pagan gods to fertility in the area. And as these Israelite kings are offering sacrifices, human sacrifices in this valley, horrifically, both of these kings would eventually sacrifice one of their sons to Molech in the valley of Himnon. And so the prophets in the Old Testament understandably got pretty worked up about this. Uh, they did not think that was a good idea. And as they start denouncing, you know, the valley of Himnon, the valley of Gehenna, what eventually came to be understood was this valley where terrible, horrific sacrifices were happening was actually a place of destruction in which uh, the Israelite people would actually start taking their garbage. As they would leave their garbage there, they'd start to burn it. And so by Jesus's day, this valley had almost a garbage dump, ever perpetually burning sense of smoke rising up from it. And this was the historical reference of what Jesus is pointing to when he talks about hell. Um, and so the conclusion then, uh, in a book like Love Wins, is that Jesus is talking about something. He's using a picture, and that picture is really just a metaphor, and it's probably not worth taking Jesus too seriously because this metaphor is meant to be a picture that's more talking about some sort of inner experience, like maybe separation from God will feel something like that. Now, I, I do think, to be clear here, if I could just put my... Uh, my pastoring out on the table for you. I don't think the Bible says as much about hell 
as my 90s upbringing <laughs> taught me, <laughs> right? I don't think the Bible actually is giving us super clear answers about what kind of destination is waiting for us. In fact, I think if you have a ton of questions of like, well, who's in and who's out, and what does destruction mean or look like, and how does this valley relate to this thing that Jesus is describing, I would have to be honest with you and say, I'm, I'm not sure I have all the answers. <laughs> I actually think there's a lot of mystery here, and I think it is helpful to push back on the mystery and say, we're not as clear or as concrete as most of us would probably like in understanding what will happen in the end. But that being said, I can't help but observe that the picture Jesus chooses to use is a pretty scary picture, <laughs> don't you think? And the, the sense that we should kind of like ignore or avoid the seriousness of what Jesus is saying here with Gehenna or even uh, the many other references, I just checked last night, 15 other references to destruction as a sort of shorthand for the alternative destination to being in relationship with God, that, that feels pretty serious. <laughs> that feels like something we should pay attention to. It feels like something that is worth not wiping off the table. So if that's true, I have found that it is helpful to acknowledge, first and foremost, there's a ton of mystery here when it comes to what we're trying to say happens or where any of us are going. But uh, if we're actually going to think well about destruction or hell, um, I actually think we need some imaginative help this is not saying this is concretely the answers, uh, but in the imaginative help, I found a few resources that kind of stir my imagination to help me understand better what Jesus might even be referring to. One of them is ironically by an atheist. So go with me here. Uh, he's got wonderful insights. His name is Jean-Paul Sartre, and he wrote a number of plays. He wrote a number of philosophies. You maybe were forced to read Absurdity, or maybe you wanted to read Absurdity. In uh, college, you can come talk to me afterwards. If you did, I'd love to talk to you, uh, if that's who you are. Uh, but his plays were interesting. He, he had very popular plays that he would put out that were really thoughtful, and one of them is called No Exit. Did any of you stumble into this play? Uh, in the play No Exit, you find uh, a room, and you find three people, a man and two women, enter this room, and as they enter the room, they immediately realize, oh, we've died, so this must be hell. And yet they're surprised as they're starting to talk to each other that there's no torture devices in this room. That's their first relief. Oh, huh, this is great. Okay, maybe this isn't going to be as bad as we feared. So as they start talking to each other, the man is pressed on why he's there, and he says, uh, this, is, this is a mistake. I, I was a pacifist. I, I didn't want to fight in the war. This was released around the time of World War II, um, and I was killed. I mean, it's terrible. I don't know why I'm here. Uh, the woman, the second woman, whose name is Estelle, Estelle equally is confused. I don't know why I'm here. This was a mistake. I don't know what's happened. The third woman, though, Inez, starts laughing and says, let's, let's just be honest. Let's get this out on the table. If we're going to be together forever, why are we actually here? I know I did terrible things. Uh, and as they start talking, they start to discover that Garcin, the man, did die as he was fleeing the war. But before he did, he horribly mistreated his wife. He was a despicable chauvinist who was also a coward. He fled because he had no courage to stand and to face that which was waiting for him, and so he was executed uh, for fleeing the war. Uh, the woman, Estelle, we discover, also had an affair that then led to a child that she then neglected. The child died, and the man that she had the affair with was so heartbroken that he commits suicide in response to her neglect. The woman, Inez, we discover as the play is going on, is just a horribly manipulative woman. She finds joy 
and sort of drawing out the agonies and the despicable deeds that these two others have done. And so as the play is going on, and again, this is dark, I'm not saying this is fun light reading uh, the next time you're sitting around the living room. Uh, as the play goes on, they start to develop this crazy triangle in which each one is attracted to the other person. And so the man wants Inez to respect him. Inez wants Estelle to fall in love with her. And Estelle is trying to get the man, Garcin, to sleep with her. And as they're going through this crazy dance, they just keep activating and triggering and activating and triggering. And it finally gets to the very end of the play. And in a stunning reversal, all of a sudden, the door to the room swings open. Door to the room swings open. And Garcin, the man, stands and starts to walk to the door. And as he does, the woman, Inez, shouts at him, I know you'll always be a coward. And he stops at the door and he turns and says, I can't leave until you take that back. I can't leave until you tell me I'm not a coward. And as he walks back into the room, the door closes and this delivers then Jean-Paul Sartre's famous line in which uh, Garcin says, hell is other people. <laughs> Hell is other people. And as the curtains begin to close, the last line in the play is Inez saying, let's just get on with it then. Now, that's a very dark picture of what it means to be human. And I'm not even sure Jean-Paul Sartre is quite right that hell is other people. I, I think maybe a better reflection is that hell is the person we are <laughs> to ourselves in relation to these other people. Hell are the choices that we make, the roads we walk down that lead to our own destruction, to the point that an escape, quite literally an open door, is waiting for us, and we cannot walk through it because of what we have found ourselves so needy and dependent on in whatever culminating choices we have become. I think, I think Jesus is, is focused fully on this kind of understanding of hell when he says, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. If you sit with this image of fruit, Jesus is not talking about appearances for appearances sake. He's not talking about religious behaviors. Jesus has spent the whole Sermon on the Mount saying you can do the right things for the wrong reasons, right? You can be acting like a good, religious, holy person, and inwardly you can be twisted and corrupted. What Jesus is saying here, though, is that what you will find throughout your life is that the person you actually are is growing fruit that begins to manifest itself. And again, this fruit is not even the fruit necessarily that happens in a first impression. You know, any of us can sit down for a dinner or drinks. We can have an impressive conversation where we're kind and where we're generous and where we laugh. What Jesus is really saying here is that the fruit of your life is actually visible to others around you. And you will know what path you are walking down by the fruit that is coming out of your life. Now, I uh, just want to give Jesus one last chance to disrupt and to confirm uh, his teaching here. This is the following passage, verse 21. Jesus is going to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. 
away from me, you evildoers. I mean, here, just in case we missed it, Jesus actually goes after those who know who he is, <laughs> those who use his name on their lips, and yet who do not actually do the hard work to come into genuine contact, to have the inward and outward parts of, them, of their lives be centered on the invitation Jesus is offering. And so just because I feel the need with you, if you're not feeling it, I need some relief. What does Jesus say? Like, where does Jesus take us? What is Jesus saying we should be doing? Here's how he closes the passage. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the, steam, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, on the surface, if you take Jesus' picture here quite seriously, on the surface, Jesus says there's nothing different in the appearance or construction of either one of these houses. Did you catch that? Like, it's not like one house is built with better stuff. It's not like one house is bigger, the other house is smaller. In fact, here's, here's the good news that I want to offer you this morning. That's what I think is actually really good news about this passage. Uh, if anything, if you track with Jesus' image here, it might be better to have a tinier house when the storm comes when it comes to even your religious practices, to the expression of your faith. In fact, for some of us, if we're being honest, we're living in the city. I know I feel this oftentimes. It feels like my, my Christian house is quite small. Like, you might be able to walk past my life, and if you don't look closely enough, like, you might miss that Jesus is there. Uh, but a tiny house in a raging storm that's built on the right foundation is better than a massive house that has been hugely advertised and overblown on its Zillow estimate that happens to be living right there on the sand. Can I get an amen? Here's, here's what this means for us. There actually is, is a very simple and kind invitation, Jesus says. You don't have to worry about getting all of your behaviors to look the right way. Instead, what Jesus says we, we have to worry about is, have we built our house, the self of who we are, on Christ? If so, it doesn't matter how big the house gets. It doesn't matter how long the fruit is going to take to slowly begin forming. If you build your life on Christ, your foundation is going to hold even when the storms come in rage. But if you miss this, if you miss building your life on Christ, it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how good your marriage is, how successful your kids are. If you build your house on the wrong foundation, you will find yourself eventually walking down the road to destruction. Now, here's a wonderful bit of good news that Jesus is going to offer over in the Gospel of John, just in case we missed it. Jesus is going to say this in John 10, 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I am the gate. This is what's so incredible and mysterious about the Christian faith. I know I long for a clear 10-step guide 
to know that I've ticked the right boxes, to know that I've done the right deeds. But instead, Jesus is going to say so simply, all it takes is a faith in me and perhaps the patience to wait at the smaller gate so that I can do the saving of your life. I said I'd share a couple pictures of hell. My other favorite comes this time from Christian author C.S. Lewis. Many of you have probably read this, uh, his justly famous uh, novel, The Great Divorce. Lewis wants to be really clear in The Great Divorce. At the very end of it, he says, I woke up as if from a dream, right? Lewis, again, is not telling us that he has all the details of this ironed out. Instead, Lewis, like Jean-Paul Sartre, is trying to stare into the mystery and imagine the consequences and the stakes. But in The Great Divorce, what we find suddenly is ourselves thrust into this story where a narrator is on a bus full of people. The bus begins to fly out of this cold, gray, dreary town. And as the bus heads to this new cliff, there in front of them they see this mountain, a grand, glorious mountain waiting in the distance. And yet the people who are sitting on the bus with our narrator all immediately start to say as they walk off the bus that this, this world feels too harsh. It's almost as if it's more real and they themselves are gray and shadow. And as they try to walk on the grass, they say it hurts their feet because it's just so real when the sun hits them. It feels like there's something more substantive here than what they've been living in before. And as these people wander off the bus, the narrator begins to describe a series of interactions that's going to take place around him. As these beings, Lewis describes, as beings of great light, come forward. Some are, seem to be angels, some seem to be saints who are now dwelling within this glorious paradise that is heaven. Uh, one of my favorite ones, or perhaps my most painful interactions that Lewis describes, is a woman. She's a gray, shadowy woman. She starts to get really excited uh, about what's waiting for her out ahead, and as she's getting really excited about it, all of a sudden she sees a person coming towards her that she recognizes. And unfortunately, you begin to discover the recognition is not good. In fact, this seems to be a family member, maybe even a brother. And as this brother is walking towards her, all of a sudden she backs up. She says, no, 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 not you. How did you get here? You shouldn't be here. You don't deserve to be here after what you did to me. No, I don't want to be here if you're here. And this family member is walking up towards her and he says, listen, there's a lot to explain. I know this is going to take time, but, but here's what I've been sent to tell you. If you can't forgive me, you're not going to be able to come with me. I, I need you to forgive me. I'm asking for your forgiveness if you're going to come with me. And the woman says, no, if that's what it takes, I want nothing to do with this. And she turns and gets back on the bus. The other interaction that happens nearby is a man who has a lizard on his shoulder. Perhaps you've heard this one. As the lizard is there on the shoulder, we discover that lizard is meant to represent lust or some kind of addiction in this man's life. And all of a sudden, a being that looks something like an angel comes towards this man, and, and the lizard starts whispering very excitedly, gets very animated and agitated. And the man starts to say, um, excuse me, I think this is a mistake. I I'm just here for a, a visit. I I'm not sure that I really need to stay. And the angel says to him, you can stay, but I must kill the lizard. The man says, this is perfectly all right. I've had this lizard for a very long time. There must be some sort of misunderstanding. I'm not sure that I really want to go through with what this is going to require. 
And the angel says, if I kill it, you can come. I can kill it, and you can come. Inevitably, at this point, the lizard starts to get really agitated, and the lizard now starts to speak. The lizard says, I, I've been with you through so much. Don't, don't you realize what you're going to miss if, I, if you lose me? Like, I've been with you. I, I can give you comfort. I can take care of you. I've been taking care of you this whole time. All you need to do is just keep me around. You don't know who you're going to be without me. And finally, as the scene is building and building, and as the angel just presses more closely, more firmly close, the man starts to scream in agony, and yet finally says, do it. Kill it. As the angel throws the lizard to the ground, the man shrieks into this great pain, and yet, as he falls, Lewis says, we begin to see him fill with light and transform. And suddenly, the man starts to stand new and as if reborn, Lewis says. And the lizard, which had been broken on the ground, actually becomes a horse. And Lewis says the man gets on and rides out to the mountain waiting for him. Here's what I think Jesus is saying to us as we close up this series on an invitation into a you plus life. I think we have the opportunity to build our lives on Jesus and find a series of hard, challenging, painful choices where we begin to walk out in faith this narrow road that leads to a narrow gate. Yet I believe what's so good about the good news of Jesus is that this invitation is not one that will harm us, but instead is one that will form us into the kind of people who are finally ready to dwell with God in the eternal city that is waiting for us. We actually have this benediction that we've been praying over you guys sneakily uh, the last eight months. And if you sit with this prayer, I just wanted to draw your attention to it as we're going to pray it again over you this morning. Um, this prayer is a prayer about following the way of Jesus. It is, in fact, a you plus prayer over you in which we are inviting you to come with us as we're all doing this humbling, painful, difficult task of calibrating our lives to Jesus here in the city. Yeah, as you see, this, this prayer talks about learning, talks about walking, it talks about transforming and it's really centered not on some sort of condemnation or fear. It's all centered on the mercy and love that Jesus wants to extend to you. Yet as you go, as this prayer is prayed over you, as you come and receive guidance and help from us, as we have these U plus conversations with you, our prayer for you is that you would find not only one day out in the future, as you wait at that narrow gate for Jesus's invitation through, but you would actually find even here and now, your whole life is beginning to sing of this Savior who is already in the midst of transforming you. To that end, may I pray for us as we hold Jesus's words together. God, I'm sure many were not uh, expecting to enter into these deep waters on a Sunday in which we've each lost an hour of sleep, in which we already feel uncomfortable, and yet, Lord, may you use, may you use the disruption of your words to check us and to challenge us, to calibrate us, to ask us which foundation our lives are built upon. And yet, Lord, as you disrupt, I also pray you would comfort and you would nourish us even as we prepare now to come to your table 
Lord, may you give us the strength and the grace that we need to walk on this path that is hard. And yet, Lord, as we walk this path, may you walk it with us. May you transform us until we are ready to enter into your presence together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.